I don't think it's such a great message to know I get graded immediately. Um, <laughs> it's probably the adolescence in me uh, coming coming out. One of the things that's absolutely true is that many of us who work in the various fields we're interested in are interested in these fields for a lot of different reasons. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, in some ways, it was always easy for me to work with adolescents, um, and it might have something to do with the changing nature of adolescence. For example, uh, it actually is only in the last 30 or 40 years that we've had adolescence. Until then, most societies, you went from childhood to adulthood, and there was often a ritual um, involved in going from childhood to adulthood. So, for example, in primitive tribes, you would, uh, Lady Strauss writes about how a kid will go out into um, the uh, the woods and uh, with a loincloth and a rock or something, and then he comes back three days later if he survives, and he talks about how he met the demons and he struggled with them and he vanquished them, and then he comes back and now he's a man and he's accepted in the tribe as a man. Um, in our society, uh, they've become empty. The rituals have become empty. For example, in the Jewish faith, there's something called bar mitzvah, of course, and um, everyone knows that's nothing. That do that doesn't mark the the end of adolescence or the end of childhood. That just sort of is a way for the parents to show how successful they've been. Um, in in fact, um, some people suggest that adolescence doesn't end in our society until, say, after graduate school or internship or residency. So you don't end stop being an adolescent until you're about 40. So I think in some ways the reason I've been interested in that field is because I've always been in a medical school. I always go to school. I deal with tests. I am an adolescent. Um, I think since the beginning of time and until the end of time, it will be the children, the kids, who take drugs. Um, and we shouldn't fool ourselves. That's the time when people will be experimenting with drugs, and they're always going to. It's a time of intense biologic, social, cultural turmoil, and I don't have to belabor a lot of the facts of it, but it really is a time when kids go from the omnipotence and power of childhood. When you're a kid, you can get what you want. You even think you can get what you want if you grow up in East Harlem somehow you'll be able to be president or you'll be a lawyer, you'll be something. You're powerful, you're a child. Things are right or they're wrong. Uh, Piaget talks about concrete uh, operational thinking. Right, wrong, good, bad, you'll make it, you'll be a great success. Then you go to adolescence and you go from them, this omnipotence, this power, to a feeling of relativity. Piaget would say, um, formal operational thinking. Everything's relative suddenly. Um, you're not omnipotent. In fact, you're somewhat weak. When people see you coming, they fear. When uh, people see a bunch of kids coming at them, they're frightened. The social institutions uh, suddenly become hostile to the adolescent. Um, the kid is looking in other people's eyes and seeing, trying to figure out what he sees there. In other words, as a child, you know you're going to be a success. Uh, just say no. Drugs are bad. Do this, do that. As an adolescent, it's, is there a place for me? I feel inadequate. What do people see? Who am I really? How powerful am I? And often the answer is, you're not so powerful. You don't have so many skills. And there's no place in adult society 
for you. Um, if you work really hard and you get A's and you get into a good college that's 10 years, um, then maybe you have a chance at possibly being a success. And often your father's saying, I'm good and you're bad, and a variety of other uh, dynamics are operating on the kid. But in essence, the kid is looking at other people's eyes and saying, looking at who does he see there? Not so surprising that many of these kids then say, too much trouble to become president, too difficult to become a lawyer or a doctor or a social worker, way easier to go the other way. And Erickson used the term negative identity that some of you know about. Um, that's not how good you can be. You've given up on that scale. It's how bad you can be. And that's the language that kids use. That's bad. And how bad you can be is where you fit in the hierarchy in some areas of adolescence. But just for a second, understand what a misfit the therapist often is. The kid is getting all his pride with how bad he can be, how he can flaunt the rules, how he doesn't care about authority, and the therapist is saying, don't you want to be president? You know, don't you want to be a lawyer? Don't you? And this kid is thinking, I'm bad, you know. I just turned on my younger sister. I'm so bad. They tattoo themselves with signs of how bad they are. And we're playing, the therapists are playing on some other scale about how good. Real interesting misfit that I'll talk about right through uh, diagnosis and treatment. But such an interesting issue with, uh, with adolescence. So a way to think about it is that drug use in adolescence is not only not so aberrant, but in some ways it makes a lot of sense. It's goal-directed activity. It makes a kid feel older, stronger, more in control, cooler, different from his parents sometimes, or better than his parents if his parents have had drug problems or alcohol problems. But uh, drug use has meaning in these kids. Um, it's not just an aberrant behavior. It makes uh, perfect sense. It demonstrates um, you've, you've made the transition from, uh, from childhood to maturity sooner, earlier. Um, in some ways, you might think of drug use as substituting for that kid who goes out into the uh, jungle and slays the demons. Drug use is an initiatory rite. Um, it's a rite of passage. It signifies the kid is becoming an adult. And when you think about it for a moment, what some of the other rituals in our society are, um, it can make your hair stand on end. I mean, the other rituals that are meaningful are driving cars really fast, fighting in bars, early sexuality, suicide attempts. We've really lost meaningful ritual, and in some ways our rituals have become quite negative often, the ones that have uh, power, getting backstage at a Grateful uh, Dead concert. Another interesting thing that's very important to remember about adolescence is that it's a time of um, perceived invulnerability, and we all know that. I mean, you remember, I'm sure we all remember, when we first started to drive, um, many of us drunk, uh, driving the car very fast, the car weaving, late at night, and people say, saying to you, you know, don't do that, or stop driving, or you're drunk, or something like that, and there was this absolute perception that you were in control and you, you'd be okay. 
but obviously you weren't in control and you weren't okay, but you truly felt invulnerable. Kids feel invulnerable. Uh, there's this profound sense that it can't touch me. Very interesting that the, the, the most vulnerable feeling kids are the middle class. The least, in some ways, are the very rich and the very poor. And in some ways, they're quite similar. Um, the very rich and the very poor often have a sense of entitlement that's remarkably profound. It's as if I can't lose or there's nothing to lose, but whatever it is, there's this sense of entitlement uh, with the invulnerability, it can't touch me. The kids of some of our greatest families um, get into the most remarkable trouble having to do with, this, can't, this won't get me into trouble, I can handle it, somehow or other I'll get out of it, um, I'll be okay. I mean, if you pardon me for a moment, to use a psychiatric term, it's this incredible narcissism of adolescence where, you know, let me, let me define narcissism in my terms. Narcissism is a term overused in psychiatry um, to mean millions of things, but to me what it means is someone lives in a world of mirrors or a world of uh, cardboard figures. The only one who's real is you. The rest of the world is merely a reflection. So basically, you're looking at other people, not at who they are, but at what they're looking at. So the world is mirrors. They're cardboard. So kids can lie. Um, they're totally concerned about their pimple because they feel as if they're on stage from the minute they get up to the minute they go to sleep. The entire multitudes are watching these kids. Uh, the narcissism is, is quite profound. You can do the most incredible things to other people because they're not real. Um, uh, the world isn't real. The world really can't hurt you because you're the only um, true actor. Now, obviously, there's degrees of that. And just to provoke you for a moment, TV plays a big role in aiding and abetting that culture of narcissism, for one. But certainly, wealth of celebrity does it as, w uh, as well. I mean, I take care of them. Um, uh, I'm the medical director of baseball. And I see these kids who are 18, 19, 20 years old who have been stars since they're eight. So since they're eight years old, these kids have been the absolute best. They were the best in the school. They were the best in the, in the area, the best in the, in the city, the best in the state. The girls, the boys, the adults, everybody sort of bowed to them in various ways. So a kid grows up thinking, um, none of these people matter. Whenever I walk into a room, everyone's watching me. Um, I'm the only one who counts, so they're not paying attention out there. The world isn't real. They can do anything they want. Drugs, driving cars fast, carrying guns. So when you read about baseball players or uh, basketball stars doing the most amazing things, it ha often has to do with there's nobody real out there. The world revolves around them, and why wouldn't it? It always has. You know, it's, that's the way they were brought up. So there's two kinds of narcissism, kind of. There's one where it's born in or early development, but I'm even suggesting there's another kind that you might call situational narcissism. And if you're a celebrity for long enough, you develop this remarkable narcissism that's just as profound as if you were born with it. And so the way to know a narcissist is <clears throat> if you meet a narcissist ten times and you remember him from the first time and he doesn't remember you after the tenth time, that's a narcissist. You know? <laughs> He's not watching. Um, 
you know him, he doesn't know you. Quite uh, intense. How do I do the first slide? There it is. Um, <clears throat> I'll run through some of these themes quickly. Um, some of the things that interest me, obviously, we could talk about a lot of different stuff, but this is this was the um, the front cover of a story about the death of Kurt Cobain, who was the lead singer of a group called Nirvana. Um, he wasn't he wasn't so famous when he was alive, but when he was dead, he got real famous and became kind of a cult figure. He's talented, um, but this was a story about his death. And look at that. Look at the graphics. Um, this is not exactly a mournful thing. This sort of has to do with romanticizing the excitement and danger and on edgeness of drug use. And that's what's going on right now in our society. It goes in waves. The 60s, that was what was happening. It's happening again. Perceived danger of drugs are down. The excitement and romance are up. He's kind of a, uh, a cultural hero because of the drugs and the darkness and the underworld. Calvin Klein ads are about heroin. Um, drugs are cool, are romantic. Models, the media leaders, um, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Late at night, darkness. Um, just to play around with ideas for a moment, the, the popularity of the vampire, of Anne Rice and the vampire movies, even though the movie is terrible, the book Interview with the Vampire is brilliant, but the popularity of that has to do with heroin, darkness, back alleys, dark clothes, no expression, sallow. I mean, one of the most characteristic things about heroin addiction in young or old people is Cool, no expression, none. It's gone. You're so cool, you don't react. But anyway, I think this is so telling that this is this is a, a dirge, but it's also so romantic. This is another way um, to think about the way the media portrays drugs. This was um, an educational, a group of educational tapes talking about the dangers of cocaine use and how to treat cocaine addiction. And this is Herb Kleber, who was the drug czar's assistant and now is professor, one of my friends, professor at Columbia. Um, uh, this is uh, Roger White, who's uh, at um, uh, McLean. And they're talking about how bad coke is and how people shouldn't do it and how you treat it and all the rest. But meantime, you probably can't see her, but this woman is beautiful. And she's smoking a crack pipe. And this is a gold uh, razor blade, and that's a gold straw. To me, the message is, <clears throat> um, if you do drugs, you get to be with beautiful women, and you get to be rich, and you get to hang around with gold things. Um, that, 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 it's, it's a, it's a double message that we're always selling when we talk about drugs. There's a romance to it and an excitement to it that we can't help communicate, uh, to young and to old. Very quickly, what's going on in adolescence? Um, oh, let me get back. Um, we all know this, I think, but this basically is showing the the uh, as of '93 the incidence of the various drug uh, 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 drugs in adolescence, and clearly, no question, alcohol use is the most important uh, drug that's currently being used, and it turns out that in some areas, uh, use is less and decreasing but also there's um, more use of alcohol at younger ages. Cigarettes, marijuana, tobacco, inhalant stimulant LSD, uh, 
Um, other opiates, sedatives, tranquilizers, coke, hallucinogens, crack, heroin, they're all on the rise. It's quite amazing. What happened was, in the 60s, drugs came from nothing and went up. Alcohol had always been high. But in the 60s, drugs started to rise in an epidemic form, reaching a peak in 79. In 79, we were winning the war on drugs, and drug use started to go down, um, down, down, down. Uh, cocaine a little bit later. Cocaine started to decrease probably in 84, 85. But we were winning until 92 or 93 when the curve starts to go up again. And it's remarkable um, how the curve going up, the increased use of drugs in kids, uh, correlates perfectly with a perceived decrease in harmfulness and a perceived decrease in uncoolness, in essence. So more romance, less harm, more drug use. Availability stays high. <coughs> Price is decreasing, but it has to do with perception of risk. It's down. And perception of how cool it is, it's up. Oh, sorry. Thinking about <coughs> ideological models, and uh, this is one of my favorite uh, subjects because uh, you can often be provocative and you can annoy any audience you want. Um, talking about why people take drugs. Um, but to make a long story short, uh, the reason why people take drugs are legion. Um, there's no one reason why people take drugs or alcohol. They take them for as many reasons as there are people. Curiosity, peer pressure, availability, um, situation, uh, psychiatric problems, um, parental problems, variety of things, positive and negative, uh, go into why people take drugs. Why these kids continue to is another issue, and that also depends on perspective. So, for example, different people say different things, and in this field, it's remarkable how we don't agree. We're still at odds. There's enormous controversy as to why people take drugs and what the treatment should be. Uh, just to give you an example of that, the same person goes to Yale and gets admitted to Yale Psychiatric. I don't know if anyone here is from uh, New Haven, but a person gets admitted to Yale. He's got about, uh, with a substance abuse problem, he's got an 80% chance. The kid has an 80% chance of being diagnosed as having a psychiatric disorder. The same kid gets admitted to, say, Hazelden. He's got about a 5% chance of getting diagnosed as having a psychiatric disorder. Same kid, both well-meaning places, neither one, you know, trying to hurt the kid particularly. Yale says 80%, calls the kid borderline. Hazelden says disease of chemical dependency, absolutely no psychiatric illness. To this day, quite remarkable. But anyhow, these are the models. Lack of self-control, that's why you drink too much or take uh, drugs too often when you're a kid. You're a pig. You don't know how to control yourself. <laughs> criminal, uh, criminal. Um, uh, you, you are an illegal, cunning, vile, disgusting, creepy person, and you should be put in jail. The most important model in this country to date with kids and adults is the criminal model. One and a half million people are in jail right now, 80% for drug-related offenses at a cost of between seventy and $110,000 a year per person. 80% of 1.5 million people, and then about 2 million are on probation. Our most important answer, uh, our, our belief is that the criminal model is most important. Psychiatric says 
these kids are doing it because they have an underlying psychiatric disorder. They have, um, it used to be thought that they had a pre-addictive personality disorder, a specific constellation of psychodynamic findings, pre-addictive. That's what the psychiatrist would have said. More recently, psychiatry is appreciating that there's a continuum from normal, very few, to um, psychotic, very many, uh, borderline and antisocial, almost everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyhow, you take the drugs as self-medication for an underlying psychiatric disorder, or the drugs, in some cases, have caused the psychiatric disorder, and that's a fascinating subject. But psychiatric disorder uh, model says that the critical issue is the psychopathology that you're self-medicating. Um, disease model, I dare say I don't have to discuss that here. Um, but uh, I mean, the interesting thing, however, is that when people believe in the disease model, it often makes it very difficult for them to see some of the others. So, for example, if you are recovering or if you're an adherent to the disease model or if you work in a program informed by the disease model, you're often loath to make a psychiatric diagnosis. It's almost like if I call him a name, someone's going to call me one. And there's a remarkable, remarkable amount of denial about psychiatric problems in kids um, in uh, programs informed by the disease model. Let me give you a quick story. A kid um, who was in one of our most famous, a 17-year-old kid in one of our most famous um, rehabs. And this kid wouldn't share, and he had this supercilious grin on his face. You know, the, the sort of, I think you're all ass, you know, uh, asses kind of look, like you're all idiots. Um, typical arrogant kid. Um, negative identity. So, so they would bring him to the group, and he'd sit there, and he wouldn't say a word. He'd just have this smile on his face, like, screw yourself. Um, day by day in, in the rehab, they'd, uh, he got, it got harder and harder, until eventually they'd have to go to his room and drag him to the group, and the groups would end up being everyone attacking this kid because he wasn't sharing. And the kid would not give in. He had that smile, and he wasn't going to give up the smile. He wouldn't speak. Um, he just held on to it until one day they went into his room and he was hanging there. Um, uh, he had figured out a way to get a rope and he was he tried to hang himself. He was blue. They cut him down, brought him to a psychiatric hospital, and he was hallucinating wildly. And that smile is the supercilious smile that some schizophrenics affect. Um, it's kind of that silly, weird grin that you've seen. Um, and that's what this kid was doing. But there was such denial on the part of the staff that they felt as if he wasn't sharing. And I promise you, uh, 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 absent denial, you make the diagnosis at 100 yards that the kid was hearing voices. So there is this remarkable tendency to not want to diagnose within the disease model. Um, oh, sorry. Neurochemical deficit. A guy named Dole at Rockefeller University is the one who suggested that this was true. And he said this great thing. He said, if you take drugs, he was working with heroin, if you take heroin for a lot of years, he felt that even when you stopped, you were changed. And what he did was, um, he was at Rockefeller, he was, he was interested in heroin addiction, which was the leading cause of death in young men in the 50s and 60s, and is now again. Um, he studied, he wanted to, to change from lipid chemistry and physics and math, and he wanted a new field. So he studied, he also was on the board of AA, so he studied heroin addiction. It probably took him about a month 
to read every single thing that was ever written. It wasn't much. Then he went and met the patients. And he came up with this idea. He said, you know, I meet these people and they're in Lexington, Kentucky, and they've been there for a year, a year abstinent. But I think they're weird. They're different. It's as if they've been changed by the drug use. Taking the drug changed them. And he formulated a neurohumoral feedback system. He said that if you take heroin over a long period of time, you're changing something such that you then have a metabolic defect in you. It wasn't until five, six, seven years later that they discovered the receptors for the endorphins. Then they discovered the endorphins and enkephalins. Now the story would be, under resting conditions, you have a, um, you have a constantly fluctuating amount of various neurotransmitters, tiny uh, amounts. In response to a, a meal, they rise. In response to pain, it changes. And they're all in flux. Add a thousand times the amount of heroin, you tend to suppress your own neurotransmitters as you would with taking thyroid hormone. Do it three times a day for 10 years, likely to have an effect on that neurotransmitter system, just as you'll knock out your thyroid gland if you keep taking thyroid. So he said, you keep knocking out your, um, your, this, this emotional control system, you stop taking the drugs from the outside, uh, they're not going to come back so quickly. But he postulated it, this metabolic defect, before anyone knew about receptors or neurotransmitters. And so last year he won the, the last, two years ago he won the Lasker Award. We think he deserves the Nobel Prize. Um, he may or may not get it. But the idea would be that when you take the drugs, you then have chronic changes in you that possibly we see as psychiatric disorders. So when you see someone with an anxiety disorder, um, that could be a result of chronic drug taking. Or when you see someone who's chronically depressed, that could be a result of chronic drug taking. The last one was sociocultural, by the way. I don't have to tell you about that. Go to Vietnam. A kid goes to Vietnam. Vietnam, you can get killed any moment. It's a horrible world. Unbelievably bad. Um, the reality is so grim that you, you, it's reasonable to look for a way out. Grow up in East Harlem, uh, rough world, not many ways to make it in straight society. The ways to make it are to deal drugs or move them or run them. Makes sense for a smart, resilient, cool kid to get involved in the drug trade in some way. A nine-year-old will stand on a corner as a lookout. And the funny thing is that the nine-year-old will dress younger. They're so sophisticated so that the cops will think he's just like a six-year-old. So he's wearing funny sneakers and dumb t-shirt. He stands on the corner and he tells when police come. He'd never use the drugs. Crack is for suckers. Stupid. Never use the drugs. But that's, in Piaget's terms, right, wrong. Um, drugs are bad. He'd never smoke a cigarette, this nine-year-old lookout. But then when he gets to be 12 or 13, things become relative. And it's kind of interesting to have a cigarette because you look a little bit older. And it might be interesting to try the crack that he's been moving back and forth. So he tries it and gets strung out. So it's a sort of bad living situation, Vietnam, uh, East Harlem, or Sutton Terrace. Um, difficult to negotiate the rites of passage, reasonable to take the drug. Something very quickly about pop culture. Um, these are the various forms of um, LSD currently available. Uh, it's called blotter, or sometimes it's on a, a sugar cube or in capsules, but they have these fanciful, wonderful... Um, logos, and we're in the process right now of a remarkable upsurge in the use of marijuana, psychedelics in general, amongst these kids. Um, uh, it, it's, it's becoming a huge thing. 
the Grateful Dead concerts and some other venues or the centers, but it's spreading throughout the culture. But as opposed to being at a deep, dark, bad thing, I mean, they, this is positive, up, exciting, great. A therapist trying to, to take care of a kid who's all down, who's relating to it as all negative, it's not going to work. MDMA is another drug that's on the upsurge. That's a mild psychedelic. It's a little bit like uh, a amphetamine and marijuana. Uh, a little bit psychedelic and a little bit up. You can dance for a long time at a club. Uh, you tend to be very happy with everybody you're, who's around you, uh, become very popular with the children. Um, point of this slide was that, and you've heard this a number of different times, is that some people who believe in the disease of chemical dependency think that drugs are generic. All drugs are the same. If you know about the disease of chemical dependency, you don't have to know about the pharmacology of the drugs. I really disagree. Each drug, each drug class has its own ethos, patterns of abuse, history, mythology, and personality type. And you've got to know as much as the kid you're evaluating, um, otherwise it doesn't work. A way to think about kids is that they're insincerity seekers. They know in a second when you're full of baloney. They know when you don't know the difference between a gram and an ounce. They know when you, you're talking through your hat and covering it up, but they also know when you know. And it's amazing how we often talk about how denial, you know, people won't tell you how much they use or what they use. With children, when you take a history, it doesn't work like that at all. If they think that you're interested and know about the subject, that's all they know about. They'll talk your ear off. If you ask them in a way of, tell me what, you know, how you do drugs, then what happened? Was it good? Did you like it? But what about the bad effects? Were there any? What did you take to take care of the bad effects? Then what happened? How did it work? Did you have any bad trips? Uh, how good was it? How did it impact on sex? You've got a kid talking and telling you, and he's really interested in the details of drug use. So you're not asking tight frequency amount. You're asking how he relates to his drug use, where the drugs and alcohol fit into his life, and he's telling you. Um, and it's his only subject, and it's pathetic. His life is falling apart, but meanwhile, you're going to get the information, and he'll appreciate you, as opposed to frequency, amount, um, this kind of very austere way of dealing with it. The point of this one was just to talk about coke and how different it is from alcohol. You know, with cocaine, this is... Um, this is a graph of uh, subjective feeling. This is, this is blood level. After you smoke crack, you get high in moments, seconds. You get high, and then the, uh, the blood level goes right up, and then the blood level comes down slowly. But the feeling is, with crack, you're getting high, getting high, getting high for minutes. The minute you reach the peak, you start coming down. You want crack the most at this point, not here. So with alcohol or heroin, for example, you want it when you're feeling sick, when you're going into withdrawal. But with crack, which is reinforcing and not classically addicting, you want it most just when you've taken it. That's also the time when you're the craziest. You know, coke makes kids or adults hyper alert. Hyper alert is paranoia. That's the time when you're the weirdest. So you want the drug the most when you've just had it. Very different from heroin, very different from alcohol, where it's not until you're in withdrawal that you want the drug. So here, you're not going to stop if you can help it. You'll die 
getting it or hurt somebody badly, very different from heroin or alcohol where where it's a it's a classical addictive cycle. Critical to know about the drug. Very quickly, something about the way uh, the drugs work in kids um, uh, 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 through the life cycle, kind of. A young young kid, I'll tell you a story. Um, young kid who teachers say is disorganized, can't get it together, books are falling apart, is always sloppy, shirts out, uh, nothing fits, but they know he's a smart kid. They know he's a bright kid. They call him ADD at the time. They even try him on amphetamines for a while. Disorganized, very bright kid. He feels like a geek, and everybody thinks he's a geek, that he doesn't fit into the society at all. The kids who accept him are the subculture, the pot-smoking kids, the, the weirdos. And they think Johnny is cool because he's so weird, because they value deviancy. They value weirdness. They say he's so crazy. He realizes immediately that his way, he has to be a pothead. He has to fit into this marijuana subculture. Problem is, when he smokes pot, it makes him crazy. It makes him hear voices and see things. It disrupts him. Can't do it. But he's got to be with these people. They're the only ones who accept him. He's got a real problem. Then he realizes that if he drinks alcohol, a lot of it, that'll bring him down. Then he can smoke pot, and the pot won't disrupt him too much. A couple of years later, he comes upon some heroin, and then he realizes this is really efficient. Um, if, I, if I do the heroin, that'll really keep me together. And then I can smoke the pot and fit into the society and sell it and be part of a society. In essence, the kids and he are rationalizing, he's not crazy, he's a druggie. He's not crazy, he's a pothead. And looking at it pharmacologically, he's a borderline personality disorder, let's say, or pre-psychotic, or the names don't matter. I don't believe in psychiatric diagnostic names. I just, you know, it's like, it's like blind men with their hands in, in, um, cotton trying to figure out the world. I mean, there's no such thing as schizophrenia. There's no such thing as borderline personality disorder. These are just poor names to attempt to get at certain types. But anyhow, this kid, when stressed, goes off, has real psychiatric problems. And we could call him borderline, we could call him pre-psychotic. Smokes pot that unsettles him, weakens his cues, knocks him off a little bit. Alcohol battens him down. Um, holds him together, decreases his anxiety. But the most powerful antipsychotic drug in the world is heroin. The best antipsychotic drug in the world is, is the opiates. Depends, um selling marijuana, doing marijuana, smoking it, all the rest of it. So the idea is to take a history um, looking at the psychiatric disorder and the drug as they relate to each other. When you read the books and you read about so-called dual diagnosis, the question is, which came first? Stupid. Every, it, you know, someone always comes with a personality, and the idea is to figure out who that person is, and then see what the drugs and the society did with that particular personality, and then what the result is, how it works. It's not which came first or which came second. It's a much more, it's more dimensions than that, my point is. It's what's the meaning of the drug use for that person, socially, psychologically. So, for example, with marijuana, early on, kids will, uh, they have variable emotions, sometimes they have a terrible time, often they feel elated, sometimes depressed, sometimes they get anxiety. Uh, chronic use often is, uh, is related to depression. Um, certain people develop psychotic disorders 
probably you need to be pre-morbidly uh, predisposed. There is a cannabis delusional syndrome, and then there's the so-called chronic cannabis disorder. That's the so-called amotivational syndrome. You've all heard about that's the kid who, he comes into your office, and he's got a headband, and he's wearing a sash, and his hair's long, and he's got a bottle of beer, and he says, I think school's irrelevant, and you feel as if you a flashback to the 60s, you know, and you, you say, kid, you know, it's been done. Um, <laughs> but, but then, then the kid tells you about his, his um, lack of motivation. He talks about how his family threw him out of the house um, four months ago, and he, uh, he lived in Scarsdale. And this kid, with no money, got across the country, and he got backstage at a Grateful Dead concert, no money, and we call him A-motivated, you know? Um, aberrant motivation might be better. At any rate, um, chronically, often these kids do get anxious and depressed, and I think it's a drug-related effect. But it's the drug and the personality. So some kids, the drug is very peripheral to their lives. In other kids, it derails them, and they can't do the work. And there's nothing more lethal and potent than marijuana in a young person. I mean, it's remarkable the toll the drug takes on the kids who are predisposed. Very difficult for, for example, Ethan Nadelman, who is a major legalizer of drugs, to appreciate how profound the effects of marijuana can be on a predisposed kid, because maybe they smoked it and it didn't derail them. Most people can handle the drugs, but these kids can't. We don't know who they are in advance. Um, difficult problems. By the way, just to be provocative, if we, if we had to legalize something, I'd probably legalize this, but I'd never in a million years legalize cocaine or um, heroin. Each of the drugs, you can do that. Acute, chronic, acute withdrawal, protracted abstinence. Natural history of marijuana use, it's sort of saying the same thing, ending up with um, irritability, depression, anxiety, and aberrant motivation. Often, chronic pot smoking uh, leads to that uh, kind of a syndrome. I don't want to talk about that. AIDS, nope. <clears throat> I thought some practical issues to uh, treating the adolescent um, uh, substance abuser uh, in your office, uh, how to think about it. A way to think about it would be uh, the primary doctor can continue to look at a kid. A parent comes to you and says, I found some a bag of pot in my, in my daughter's uh, drawer and a little vial that looks like it has a tiny bit of cocaine in it. Um, uh, bring, bring the kid to the local psychiatrist, to their psychiatrist, to their uh, primary care physician, to their um, internist. Continued follow-up is reasonable if the doctor knows something about the area. The drug use is intermittent, experimental, and appropriate for the age and the sociocultural group. That's a little controversial. I'm saying it is not so abnormal in some societies for the kid to smoke pot. Don't go crazy. The treatment can be worse than the disease. The idea is to figure out where that kid is and whether the kid is doing okay in school and uh, related issues. No significant psychopathology. Function, educational, social, legal, vocational spheres is unimpaired. Reasonable progress taking place in developmental tasks, and that's the big one. I mean, there's good evidence to suggest that early drug use screws up your ability to, to, to negotiate the rites of passage, leading to psychopathology. So the drug use, or the inability to negotiate those tasks, leads to the psychopathology or the weird way of behaving in the world. 
So it really is causative in the psychological problems, like the so-called antisocial uh, personality uh, uh, disorders in these kids. I don't believe in 90% of them, but what you're seeing really often is the drugs knocking a kid off. So this would be continued follow-up by the primary care uh, provider. <clears throat> this would be referral to an inpatient drug treatment program or specialized hospital. This is true if you're allowed to, if managed care allows you, if insurance allows you to. Interesting how that's changed. 20 years ago, when I tried to get a kid into a program, it was impossible. Nobody wanted him. Nobody would take him. Then came the burgeoning of all these rehabs and psych hospitals aimed at adolescent drug abusers. Then there was a sense that they would admit a kid if he was in the room with someone smoking a pot and, and keep him for 60 days, you know, until his insurance ran out. It was a sense, you know, you know that... Feed me, is a little shop of horrors. You had a sense these rehabs were like, feed me, feed me. And I think the disease, the, the treatment was worse than the disease in some of these kids because these kids were labeled way prematurely, way unduly. Suddenly they were being forced to accept the disease of chemical dependency and the kid was 14 and a half and he'd smoke pot twice. You know, something like that. No kidding. Uh, because he was on his way uh, to that situation. This program near us, right where we are in New Jersey, that was one of the serious offenders in that regard. Um, so referral, if there's compulsive or addictive use, psychopathology, serious uh, uh, danger to self or others, repeated failure at uh, outpatient treatment. We've got a problem because we're going to have trouble paying for it. Referral to speciali specialized practitioner or treatment is a little bit out of order. Uh, uncertainty or lack of experience on the part of practitioners present. This has to do with dealing with kids. You can know a lot about taking care of grown-ups, but dealing with kids may be very different. Frequent, regular, compulsive drug use is found. Psychopathology, impaired function in educational, social, legal. That's more important than the characteristics of the drug use, whether they're making it in school or not. Persistent antisocial behavior is noted. So rather than whether he smokes pot or whether he's done coke, it's whether he's functioning, she's functioning, what the rest of her life is, how it fits into uh, the rest of the society. I have run over my time. Let me just... Could we turn those slides off? Um, what I'll do is I'll, rather than... Um, Take up your time. I'll, I'll bring it together. I think that <clears throat> treatment of the adolescent uh, drug abuser has not received adequate attention in um, the last 20 or 25 years. What we generally have done is we've taken adult treatment and moved it to the adolescent, just made it smaller or changed the, some of the words a little bit, and that's missing the point because in some ways it's a very different phenomenon. And let me start right with the central issue. The disease model of chemical dependency, that says that this is a lifelong disease and that the way to do it is to be, be abstinent from all mood-altering drugs and go to meetings. So the kid gets admitted to an outpatient program in the school or related to the school or maybe even an inpatient program and it's the disease model. Picture it from the kid's point of view. He's 14 years old. He's having a lot of trouble with sex which is one of the major determinants of why kids use drugs. Um, he's having trouble figuring out where he's at. The other kids are all using drugs, and suddenly he's put into a program, and he's told that he's got this disease, and for the next 74 years, <laughs> he can't have a drink, 
and he can't take a mind-altering substance. And we expect him to sit in those meetings with grown-up spiritual language, and this kid is a kid. He's invulnerable, he's full of denial, he's feisty in the way kids should be, he's not surrendering control so easy, he hasn't even lost control over the drug, you know. And, and we're telling him, you know, no, no big deal, 74 years of meetings and, um, <laughs> you'll get into it. <laughs> the kid is brave enough, strong enough, tough enough, narcissistic enough, honest enough to fight back. I mean, in some ways, the dishonest ones say, I can't win here. I'm just going to go along, and when I get out, I'll go my own way. But the honest ones, the ones we've been brought up to tell the truth, to see clearly, to try to, they're fighting. They're saying, no, you know, I don't, don't agree. And you know what happens in a program when you fight. Um, there is the superciliousness on the part of the program, whether it's psychiatric or 12 steps of, we know and you don't. And we're right and you're not. Um, and what happens to a youngster is he begins to doubt his sanity. And he can become very rebellious, or he can become do docile, but whatever it is, it's really upsetting. We have to figure out a new way for that kid. The, the answer isn't the disease model, necessarily. The answer might be a situational model based on the stresses and strains of adolescence. Not 12 steps, not sitting in those rooms in that way, using that language, but another model that's much more tied to being competent in the world, life skills training, being able to negotiate the initiatory rights, dealing with how to cope, how to do sex, how to do uh, relationships, how to do schoolwork, not go to the, the meetings. Um, that's not the answer. What happens with these kids is they go to the programs, and in some ways it weakens them further because they're wrestling with powerlessness, not powerlessness, surrender, not surrender, um, without having the disease in the first place. It's a serious issue. So what I'm suggesting is we need a graded series of programs starting from low-level program of, of a grown-up uh, relating to a kid in some reasonable, empathic, non-judgmental way saying, you know, this is what I think, all the way to groups, all the way to an inpatient, highly structured program, including medication for a psychiatric disorder perhaps. But the idea is that we should be treating people as they lay rather than having a model and then forcing these kids into this model that often uh, doesn't fit so correctly. Um, I'd like to name some of the names of the programs that are real offenders, but all I do is get into trouble when I do that. Um, but, but that generally has been the way we've looked at it. And it's very difficult to go another way. Let me give you an example from the point of view of a practitioner. Um, you, um, uh, you, a kid is brought to you and he's just been to see a, um, a, a rehabilitation specialist or a physician who works at a rehab. And the physician has recommended inpatient treatment or intensive outpatient treatment, 12-step program. You, you know the kid has used pot, he's used coke a few times, and he's done some uh, LSD, he's taken some LSD trips. You have a sense that this kid's doing well in school, his social relationships are okay, he doesn't have a lot of psychopathology, he looks like he's going to be okay. But meanwhile, you're not sure. But the other doctor is saying, give him, you know, throw the book at him. Put him in because he's in great danger. 
it's real scary to advocate a lighter sentence because you could be wrong. You know, and it's very scary to be out on a limb saying, I suggest less rather than more. You don't know that the kid is not, you know, one of the major dangers in kids is acute effects of the drugs. He takes too much alcohol and he has a car accident. He overdoses with um, uh, his first exposure to heroin. So it's kind of a frightening thing given all these models. Where to find your line? Um, often, the one who advocates the most severe, most draconian, most restrictive treatment is the one who wins the day because, in a way, that's the safest. And it's hard to go against that kind of thinking. I think that's true with adults as well. So, so you, you sort of catch your breath and you say, I don't think he needs to be an inpatient. I think he might benefit from a group, um, uh, that sort of thing. I'll close on, on this note. Um, to me, one of the most um, poignant uh, um, things in medicine, uh, moments in medicine, is when a youngster comes into your, your office who is absolutely falling apart. Everything is going down the drain. I mean, school, relationships, parents, the kid thinks he's the worst thing on earth. He's sullen. The world is his total enemy, and he's really heading for death. And with a combination of various sorts of support, concern, appreciation, understanding, in a remarkably short time, the kid often gets remoralized and lives um, a life of quiet desperation like the rest of us. Anyhow, very rewarding. Thank you. <laughs>